Sean, this is going to be an unmitigated disaster. Uh, I want to welcome everybody who is here with us in person at, for this Law Talk taping at the Federalist Society's annual meeting. And I want to thank all the people who are listening uh, at home in our normal format. Uh, you're going to have to bear with us if you're listening at home because we have an audience in front of us of people who are deeply versed in the kinds of issues that you guys talk about. And we have an audience at home that may not be quite as deep in these things. But I believe that in the best Law Talk tradition, we will find a way to disappoint both of those contingents tonight. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Troy Senek. I'm a former presidential speechwriter and the co-founder of Kite and Key Media. And for the past over a decade, uh, I have had the pleasure to have regular sessions with these two gentlemen on, on, gentlemen on topics in constitutional law, uh, usually the pleasure, sometimes the dishonor. And uh, it just remains for me then to introduce them to you as if you didn't already know. Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu. Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. If you notice, I still have to read that after 12 years. <laughs> I've never memorized this. It's because it changes every episode. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you both for being here. I want everybody in the audience to know how close run a thing this was. I wasn't sure that we were going to be able to pull this off. We've never done something like this at FedSoc before. And there were a couple of reasons that I thought that it, it was a little dodgy. One, many of you may know this. John Yu loves two things in the world more than anything else. Philadelphia sports and absolutely disgusting food. <laughs> so in light of the Philadelphia Phillies World Series loss and the impending demise of the McRib, we just got him off the emergency psychiatric hold this morning. <laughs> With Richard, uh, slightly different and, and much simpler issue, uh, which is there is an investigation that we have now cleared up because every time that Richard speaks at a Federalist Society event, there are allegations that he is using performance-enhancing substances. <laughs> we are in the clear now. And so we move forward. Uh, so we will have some time for... Q&A uh, at the end, but what I thought we would start with is just kind of a tour of the horizon with the two of you on some of the big cases coming before the Supreme Court this session. So let's start uh, with affirmative action in these cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. So everyone here in the audience and, and listening at home understands the issues at stake here, whether and how these schools can take race into consideration and admissions. So I'll leave it to the two of you to figure out what angle you want to take on that. But I wonder if you'll start by indulging uh, the layman's curiosity as the only non-lawyer within five blocks of this building. <laughs> in reading the oral arguments in this case, uh, I was struck by how much time was spent on the question of how long this can go on. This idea that affirmative action is this intermediate measure that's only necessary because we're in this transitional state of moving to a more racially egalitarian world. And there was this constant recursion to what Justice O'Connor said back in 2003. You need this for about 25 years, and then after that, no longer any need for it. Even at the time, that was widely criticized from the right. People saying, who is this visionary that she knows it's 25 years? So Richard, I'll start with you. That, 
uh, line of argument from Justice O'Connor and the, the sort of, um, I won't say centrality, but the really big role it played in this discussion. Has, did that analysis come to have too much power here in how we think about these cases? It was one of the more astonishing statements ever written in any of these cases. I should say, just as a matter of history, I came into the legal profession in 1968 at the University of Southern California when the first major affirmative action programs were put into place. And uh, what happened is you were overwhelmingly impressed about not only the need that people perceived for the program, but the real splits that took place with respect to boards and grades with respect to the applicants. In fact, in 1969, I was actually at the ripe old age of 26, I was in charge of that particular program. And it's clear that if you wanted to have any representation, you had to make some allowances, and all the battle would be over what kinds of allowances would be made and what. Uh, so what happens is there's now 35 years that runs, and the question you would want to ask is look at the numbers as they existed in 1968, and look at the numbers as they existed in 2003, it's a 35-year period, and see if there's any kind of material change that would give you reason to have the hope that this thing would disappear uh, in another 25 years. And I think what you can say is there certainly was the possibility of having a tendency of movement, but it was relatively slight. Um, if over 25 years you're not even sure that all the pressure is going to push you in one direction as it pushed to push you in other directions. One of the complications that affirmative action programs had in law school is by this time they were in competition with all sorts of programs, affirmative action and not, in the business sector. And many people who might have gone to law school for want of opportunities elsewhere in 1968 were not going to be particularly willing to do it uh, come 19, uh, 2003. Uh, so I made my own prediction at the time, which was that if you're talking about change, it would be plus or minus 5%, maybe 10%. Nothing else could possibly happen. Uh, there was no explanation or any discussion of it. So I think in the answer, uh, it was never worth believing. And the question is, is it worth using? Well, Justice Connor is a balancer, and she's trying to figure out a way to say we could do a little of this without having to do too much. Uh, but this particular test, I think, completely fails that particular situation. So now what you do is you get another surreal debate on top of the first surreal debate. And the second one is, well, it's now 19 months. So we treat this as a failed clinical experiment and just stop the whole thing. Or do we say, oh, my God, it shows that the problem is even more serious than we thought it was. So we continue it not for 25 years, but for 50 years, make it, in fact, permanent. And what you do is you see on the liberal side the notion that this is a permanent condition. We have to deal with it as such. And on the conservative side, essentially enough is enough. One of the things to remember, and I'll sit on this note, Justice Roberts is not a moderate on this particular issue. His most famous remark is the best way to end affirmative action is to end affirmative action, a remark not known for its subtlety. And so what happens is he can't possibly accept this stuff because he wasn't in this particular mood even before he was on the court. Uh, so I think it's quite likely, as a predictive matter, uh, that this argument will be rejected and that we will be asked to go cold turkey with respect to affirmative action, at which point, John, you will explain to us what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs>
Look at that. Wow. Richard, you are in a loose mood. <laughs> some more to drink. Uh, uh, look, mal remember, with malice towards none, but a little towards John, is the, way, <laughs> is the way in which we sort of make this go. It's amazing you've replicated the, the way we act in the sound booth when we record these shows together. Yeah. So uh, I think the 25 years thing is interesting because it really shows how much of this was just judicial creation. Because think about it. I mean, we've got a lot of uh, judges here. I asked the judges here, can you think of any place where the court has said uh, it's okay to violate the constitutional rights here for just a few years? And then after those years, you can get the rights back. Right. So think about that. Like, um, yeah, the government can take your property for like 12 years and then you can use it again. Or, uh, yeah, the uh, Alabama can stop the NAACP from operating in Alabama for like 15 years and then they can come back. Right. Like the, I can't think of another area where the court has said, yes, we know there are constitutional violations going on, but it'll be OK after just a set period of years that we make up. So if anybody in the audience can think of right, a time limited constitutional right, bring it up in the question and answers, because I, can't, I was just really I can't think of somebody one whispered Korematsu. But that's not right. Temporary. I, if the war had gone on longer, the violation would have gone on longer. Right? And they would have kept them longer. Yeah, they would have kept and turned them longer. I can't. So I was trying to think, that's one thing, just like how much of a judicial creation it is to say, oh, yeah, constitutional rights can be violated for certain periods of time. It wasn't exactly clear why it was 25 years. Right. It wasn't even clear what was supposed to happen in those 25 years to justify the violation of the rights. And so uh, when you look at the briefs, and you're right, Troy, this was a big question in oral argument. If you look at the briefs, it was really interesting, as well as an oral argument, that those supporting affirmative action refused to answer the question of how much longer. So uh, 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 to my surprise, my employer, the University of California, filed a brief uh, because they wanted to rebut the accusation that the University of California had a diverse class. Even though this year, the University of California admitted the most racially diverse class in the history of the university. Because they said, yes, we're diverse, but we're not diverse enough. And we're not gonna tell you when we're gonna be diverse right. enough. And we're not gonna tell you how we'll be diverse enough. And it's really interesting brief. They just said, we just know right now, it's not diverse. And so the 25 years is just this moving goalpost now. It's going to be another 25 years, or it's going to be another definition of diversity, which is not attainable. But this power to violate constitutional rights is never going to end. You know, Chief Justice Roberts is not always one of the most frequently quoted justices, but, but I did want to mention that in oral arguments, he had, by my lights, one of the great lines in the history you of the court. global players? Which is... When Harvard's lawyer, this is, he's comparing the benefits that race might confer in the admissions process to the benefits a young musician might get if the university orchestra needed an oboe player. And the chief justice responded, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. <laughs> not yet, anyway. Can you imagine how bad the oboe player at the Harvard orchestra feels right now? <laughs> <laughs> so it's... To take another angle on this, it is maybe uh, also worth highlighting the fact that we are getting our first look at Justice Jackson in these cases. Oh, God. <laughs> Richard, wait until the question is complete before you sigh that painfully. <laughs> so she was recused in the Harvard case uh, because she was on their board until recently, but she was part of the UNC case. And John, she made an interesting argument in there. She said, 
that there would be cases where not considering race would be an equal protection violation. So to wit, she says you've got two UNC applicants. One's a legacy. Previous generations of the family went there. That's a thumb on the scale for admissions. The other is the descendant of slaves and people subject to Jim Crow laws. Couldn't have been a UNC undergrad even if they wanted to be. If I don't factor that in, that is an equal protection violation. What do you make of that argument? God help us. Um, I think it's a complicated argument, but let's just take it one step further. Yeah, it was addressed to John. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, but what happens, suppose it turns out you've got a third person, an immigrant who comes from a country like Korea who starts with nothing, and can you have yourself an equal protection situation where you consider the descendant of the slave, but not the descendant that comes in the other cases? Uh, so what happens is you can take into account all minority statuses, or none of them, I think, but what you cannot do is to so jigger and gerrymander the question uh, so that the only people whose disadvantages you could take in are people who are the descendant of slaves. The other argument is um, actually go back and check who gets in under these programs. We've had many migrations into the United States of uh, minority candidates who come from East Africa and other places. They're not descendants of slaves at all. They are covered by the Affirmative Action Program. Uh, do we now sort of have to exclude them from the way in which it's going? Uh, the point is, under the Equal Protection Clause, unless there's a deliberate effort to slight some other group, uh, you can't treat this as an equal protection violation. And we know why we consider alumni. We consider them because they're going to give a return benefit to the institution in terms of greater gifts and greater supports, whether obliged to do so or not. And that's a reason which cannot apply to impoverished individuals who have to receive scholarships. So I don't think it's an equal protection violation. If that were the case, essentially, every school and every place would be in sort of violation of the Constitution. And this argument would have been available for a very long time. Uh, so I think that we should regard that as an imprudent musing by a Supreme Court justice who should pay a little bit more attention to the uh, more traditional arguments in the area. John? I actually think it's a reflection of how radical she already is, um, as if we didn't know before. So it doesn't actually matter whether the legacy person gets in or not. That's not prohibited by the Constitution. The Constitution just doesn't address all these other factors that universities are allowed to use when they choose uh, students, like being a good basketball player, right, or being uh, good at uh, oboe. I don't know what it, you would call oboe playing. Oboist. Oboeing. Woodwinder. <laughs> So the only thing the Constitution addresses in this, con in this comparison is race. And, uh, you know, Justice Jackson is, uh, you know, espousing a theory that's very common in the academy, right? That affirmative action is still remedial in the sense that it's making up for systemic society-wide racism that has been right, implanted from the beginning, and then through slavery, and then through Jim Crow. Uh, the country's fundamentally racist, so it's okay to use extreme measures to try to cure it. Uh, she can say that in dissent, but the Supreme Court has already repeatedly said that that is not a valid justification for race-based remedies. You have to uh, be using race-based remedies to address people who have actually suffered the segregation or the slavery or the original um, racial discrimination. That It doesn't count to just keep trying to address social, uh, alleged social 
racism. And so I expect she'll write a lengthy dissent that makes this argument that the court has been wrong these many, it's been 30 years, I think, at least since Croson, where the court has said, yeah. right, society, alleged society racism is not a legitimate grounds to violate the rights of other, the, the constitutional rights of other people to try to correct them. But I have another observation to make about this. I am very unhappy about the use today, as opposed to 50 years ago, of the argument that we're doing this to rectify some past sin. What happens is if you are now a school system and you wish to have a program of uh, affirmative action and to do so for all sorts of forward-looking reasons, what you then do is you hire a bunch of historians and their job is to dig out every piece of dirt that you could find on this particular organization, school, and then you, the school district, says we were miserable for the following 15 reasons and they just go on and on about this stuff. My own attitude about this is, you know, you're trying to figure out what the consequences of segregation are. You desegregated most schools in 1954, 1964, and to try and use the events that happened then and ignore all of the events that happened since that time is essentially to wildly overrate the effect of remote causes as opposed to new ones. So let me just sort of mention one kind of thing where it's problematic. Um, illegitimacy rates. I mean, they have been traditionally higher in black families than in white families, but they were far lower in black families in 1925 than they are today. And so when we start talking about the high illegitimacy rates, are we supposed to attribute them to the stuff that took place back under slavery, or in fact, is it going to be attributed to the stuff that took place after the period when these things went down? And if you do the latter, there is a basically a clear causal separation between the earlier injustice, whatever they were, and, and, and the current type of situation. So I think, in effect, that all of these past historical arguments should be time-barred today by virtue of the fact that too much has happened between them, and it's a kind of a statute of limitations, which I think would work very well in this situation. Can I make one uh, additional point that the reason it seems to me Justice Jackson made that argument is because she can tell, I think you could tell from oral argument, that this elevation of diversity as a justification to violate people's constitutional rights is no longer going to fly. I mean, one thing to be sensitive about is that the court has said you cannot, the government cannot use race in area after area, right? Law enforcement, national security, contracting, hiring on and on on. The only exception in society where you can use race is to guarantee diversity in college admissions. Like, that's the most important, right, thing that society can do, that we have to allow this exception to a colorblind constitution. And so you could see, I, I don't know, maybe Richard disagrees. I, I thought from hearing the arguments that that is just not going to fly with the Supreme Court. And so that's why it seems to me Justice Jackson and people who support affirmative action in the court are trying to shift it back to it's really just a remedy for this kind of social discrimination, social racism. And in a way, this sort of reflects the problems of your industry, Troy, which is, I don't know what you do for a living. It's like cultural manipulation. I don't, <laughs> but, I don't really know either. To be honest. But like this, this shows the power of the 1619 Project, it seems to right. me. And this, well, this idea that the society is fundamentally racist is really going to be what they try to, I think, hook the whole argument on. Look, I will make the following observation. 
is one of the reasons you talk about systematic racism is you don't have to talk about the racism of any individual. Uh, so if it turned down, for example, that what you wanted to go is to say, look, there was systematic racism uh, that took place in uh, Minnesota when George Floyd was killed. Uh, now I'm going to come up to you and say, well, who were the racists? And tell me what they did. Well, you look at everybody in that system from top to bottom, and they were all very strong and deep progressive and multiple backgrounds in faith. Not a single one of them would support anything remotely like what they thought happened with respect to the police. So the reason why it's such a dangerous notion is that it allows you to engage in affirmative action of a very extensive rate without actually pointing out to what are the systematic things that they're talking about. My view about systematic racism is not what a policeman may do on the beat, be it right or wrong. It's the set of policies that are put together by the police department, by the Department of Public Safety, everything else. You look at those policies, and Minnesota had essentially turned itself inside and out in order to deal with all the issues which get described in the opposite way. Uh, so what I regard as systematic racism is, is a kind of a form of group defamation that is starting to take place without the need to prove it to anybody else and with allowing, allowing anybody else to start to say that they're not. So, I mean, my view is if somebody wanted to come forward and have a discussion in which the common term white supremacist is used, and I'm thinking about Theodore Bilbo and James Eastland and a bunch of other guys, um, the question I would really want to ask them to do is identify all the white supremacists in the room with whom you disagree. Uh, make it that personal. Because if it's everybody, it's nobody. And if it's nobody, there's no responsibility. And if it's everybody, there's everybody responsibility. And I don't think you can make out charges like that at this grand global level, given the hazard that I've started uh, uh, to point out. I do know some people, I think, who have been supremacists of one sort or another. I've known people of all different races who've had terrible biases against other kinds of groups. This is not defending any of those kinds of bad behaviors, but it is a very strong insistence that when you do these things, you make good on the charge by identifying the people whom you think have gone wrong. And you try to do that in the George Floyd case, and you're going to come up with nothing because everybody on that issue was on the other side of the case. Let me move you guys on to another case because it's one that a lot of our listeners have written in to ask you to explain. And this is uh, Moore v. Harper, the case out of North Carolina about how much power the state legislatures have when it comes to setting the parameters around elections, especially vis-a-vis -vis the courts. Uh, the particular case that prompted this is actually a dispute over redistricting and the courts in North Carolina invalidating the maps that the legislature passed. And John, it strikes me that this is a rare Supreme Court case in that it is, A, not about what we would typically think of as a hot-button social issue, but B, still ginning up attention amongst lay people which seems like a nice civic moment, except for it's ginning up attention amongst lay people because a lot of them are convinced that this could be the death knell for democracy if it goes the wrong way. So for particularly for our audience at home, could you actually just explain the, the parameters of what's actually at stake here? Because there is a, a lot of breathlessness about this case in sort of the broader media. Well, well, I can explain why people are getting so agitated about it because uh, it really has, well, not really, maybe has implications for uh, the selection of presidential candidates, mm -hmm. because the the main legal question is when the Constitution says a state legislature does this, does that actually mean only the state legislature does this, or does it mean the state legislature plus governor plus review by the state courts does this? Uh, 
the reason why people are getting excited about it is because the Constitution says that state legislatures are the ones that control time, place, and manner of congressional elections, uh -huh. which includes redistricting. Uh, so in the case of Moore versus Harper itself, this is the question, can a redistricting map drawn by the legislature be vetoed by the governor or can it be essentially redrawn by the state courts? But I don't think that's exactly why our friends at MSNBC are getting so excited about it. Um, MSNBC viewers and commentators are excited about it because the implication is, can a state legislature, say in Pennsylvania, have rejected the popular vote for Joe Biden and instead said, no, we're going to take the elector vote and give it to Donald Trump? Uh, if it's, you could, because uh, the Constitution says state legislatures are the ones who choose presidential electors, electors, not the state. And so I, I think, uh, to me, it does seem like the answer to both of those questions should be the same. Uh, so if the court were to, when I say, if the court were to say, as I, I think it might, that uh, only the state legislature can draw districting maps and that state courts are not empowered to change them, then it does seem to me that that suggests that state legislatures are also free to cast the electoral votes, even if under state law, they're given to popular election. Uh, Richard was uh, singing the praises of Chief Justice Roberts. We should all remember this does not happen very often uh, when Richard praises Chief Justice Roberts. But this is another case where Chief Justice Roberts has also been very clear and strong. He wrote a, there was a case out of Arizona a few years ago. Arizona created one of these redistricting commissions. We also have one in California. Uh, that case was challenged as a violation of the state legislature language. And that was a five to four case. Chief Justice Roberts wrote uh, and, uh, maybe one of his best dissents ever, where he said there's got to be a difference between state legislature and just the word state when the Constitution uses one or the other. He thought that this, in that case, five to four, he wrote the dissent that only the state legislature should, could draw districting maps. And so uh, he, if he stays true to his you know, initial position, uh, I expect he'll be, uh, you know, he'll, he'll want to, the court to change its precedent on this. The message associated with this topic is simply unreal. Uh, one has to remember that the entire electoral process has been utterly changed since the time that the Constitution was first put into place. Uh, the Electoral College was widely understood not to be one college, but each state had its own college, each state of which would then do a deliberative vote, and then you would kind of move things to the center. By 1800, it became very clear that deliberation was not the game, and so what happened is the college became a bunch of messengers in which it turned out that the state would require them delegates in advance to pledge themselves, which you could never do if it was a legitimate body, and then have to faithfully execute. They tried to get rid of that a couple of years ago, and Justice Kagan, amongst others, uh, said, we're just not going to allow the Supreme Court to change the practices that have been used. And then she made a dreadful set of originalist arguments, saying that what they did was consistent with originalism. It was not, because it turns out if they're only messengers, there is no reason to exclude certain people from becoming members of this particular deliberate 
operative body, and there was some such exclusion. So at this point, we've changed the system. So let me start with some of the things that you really have to be scared about. Suppose it turns out that you have this system of pledged electors, and you said the legislature can do what it wants. It sees what the electoral vote is, and then it decides, because it's in the opposite party, uh, that it's going to overrule that particular vote and send all the ballots going into the opposite direction from the popular election. My view is the Constitution has already been changed, much the way Article I courts have changed the Constitution, and that once we've committed ourselves to that thing, the rest of the Constitution has to be changed, and so essentially those uh, binding relationships cannot be removed by the legislature, notwithstanding what the clause says. So that's one kind of thing you do. Then there are other kinds of problems. Um, me and Matt, who's sitting here, had this endless, Matt Phillips, endless debate. I'm, I'm not sure... I won. I'm not sure he won. I know that he is more in line with the tradition than me. But when I looked at this thing, I wrote a paper and I said, I'm looking at time, place, and manner regulations. And I'm thinking of when we hold it, where we hold it, and how we conduct a particular election. And so I came up with the audacious argument for which there is no historical evidence, saying redistricting is not a part of the particular process associated with time, place, and manner on how you put an election together. Well, if that's the case, then the state legislature has complete authority over that issue, utterly independent of what the federal government wants to say, at which point they could then create the commission on their own because they're not subject to federal consent. Well, Matt Phillips is there. He actually does some historical research to embarrass me. And what he finds out, if I'm not mistaken, there were a bunch of cases in the 1830s and 1840s, right, which essentially had taken your view of the issue, uh, that redistricting was covered. And that's very unsatisfactory both ways. Is the federal government really in a position to say that um, uh, it can ban districts, territories, stuff, and require every delegate in every state to be elected at large? Or, or can the states do that, right? I mean, you know, we've run it so much in this particular fashion. Uh, do you have those kinds of freedom and want? And of course, you're talking and doing originalist history, and your earliest reference turns out to be 50 years after the particular document. These are not contemporary expositions. They were not reason kind of conclusions. So some normative guy like myself can disagree and the issue ends up in some kind of an impasse. Uh, so I actually thought that. But that's not what John's talking about because there's another problem. Suppose they're right and you say to the legislature, uh, you start doing this in 1787 and you have all these state constitutions that come in with novel restrictions at some later time. Are those things going to be binding? Or do you mean that the legislature, as constituted, uh, has to be lawfully constituted, and this other stuff is put to one side? Well, I think that's a close question. My own view about it is the last thing I would ever allow is the kinds of arguments you say, well, we have to have free and fair elections in this state, and to use a clause with that kind of rubbery situation as a reason to oust the power of the legislature. But suppose the legislature essentially said, uh, we are going to do our district thing so that no person of different colors can do it. My guess is the Equal Protection Clause would then bind on that case. Well, then what's the remedy? And here's another trick. It's one thing to say the legislature can do it and the courts could block it, but suppose the courts block it, can the court then impose the system? And whatever you want to say the legislature is constrained is one thing. To say that the courts is unconstrained can do it is not, to my mind, really consistent with the clause. And then there's the problem of how the time frame starts to work. And so I regard this as an incredible mess in terms of the way in which you put it together, uh, because 
Nobody completely thought through the particular structure. And what is true about general American constitutional law is that people have general trust and stability with one another. They can kind of work these things out on an ad hoc basis. But the moment it becomes deeply polarized, it's going to be exactly like it was with Bush v. Gore in 2000. People will dream up arguments that nobody thought to be possible the day before all these ingenious lawyers came together on the particular question. I do not think that the courts have the power to redistrict, uh, which then leads you to this impossibility situation where you don't get it done in time. Uh, it's clear that uh, state legislatures are completely corrupt, and the really bad decision that Justice Roberts wrote was the idea that uh, we have very strict rules uh, with respect to equal numbers of people in districts, and we have no rules whatsoever about the shape of the particular districts. That's a pure political question. And then uh, when the court is away, the birds will come out and pray. And so uh, the Democratic states have weird districts, the Republican states have weird districts and so forth, and the whole thing completely degenerates. And so I think it, that's a classic illustration if you're going to basically see that the uh, votes really matter in these things. You can't stop with a remedy that doesn't work. You have to go the whole nine yards and try to figure out a way to develop compactness requirements which would stop that situation. And you see the difference after what happened in New York when they had this very dicey situation. And New York basically turned red in 11 districts or something. So um, I, I, I plague on both your houses is not quite fair. I, I want to give it a vote of sympathy for everybody who can't figure out what the answer is because I want them to know they're not alone. Richard's view is colored by the fact that you lived your whole life in two states, Illinois and New York. So when you say... When you say state legislatures are completely corrupt, it's just your own personal experience. You're not taking the average of a country. Uh, let me just make uh, two well, other I mean, points. We, yeah, um, <laughs> two, uh, two additional points, though, is that... Um, you know, if you read this consistently throughout the Constitution, and uh, the state legislature idea, just being up to how a state decides to organize itself, then this would mean, uh, one, that a state could just say, we're going to concentrate all power to pick the electors, to draw the districts, to, to ratify constitutional amendments in one person. Right. Richard Epstein in the state of New York shall have full power to pick the president. He's a resident of Connecticut. <laughs> you have a very good tax advisor. Actually, a very bad tax advisor if you're living in Connecticut. Um, As opposed to New York. So that's, that's one thing. That if, you, if you allow a state to sort of define for itself what a legislature is, you have to accept the possibility that the state could do anything when it decides who gets to perform those functions. The second and last thing I'll say is just, there is some, I think there could be historical uh, research done and this could solve some issues. So for example, uh, state legislatures, right, until the 17th Amendment appointed senators. Uh, do we have any example where uh, a governor would veto the choice of the legislature of the senators or a state court would block the selection. So do we have any examples where a state court or a governor would block a state legislature's ratification of a constitutional amendment? So that's the way, one thing that people could do is look at every time the Constitution says state legislature, do we have any historical examples where the other branches of state government interfered with the way the legislature... I don't think there's any evidence of such from the early years of the Constitution. Look, there's one other point to mention. 
is that the legislature is a body, but if you look under the federal constitution, uh, there are certain things that it do which are not legislative. And so it has the ability to deal with particular orders, rules, and instruction. And you know, that's the charter question. And if what you say is that vetoing a particular person coming back into the United States is one of these other activities, then bicameralism ought not to apply. Um, so it's layer upon layer of all this stuff. I mean, constitutional law has the following very nice situation. If everybody stays on the tracks, the trains run smoothly. The moment somebody gets off the tracks, you get a smasher. Um, and thank God for that, because otherwise us lawyers would be impecunious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to give people in the audience a chance to ask questions of the both of you. So if you all will start chambering your questions for them, I will ask you one sort of court-watching question uh, to conclude our portion of the discussion, which is on these kinds of questions about uh, what's called the independent state legislature, there were a number of uh, challenges to this in North Carolina before the court finally accepted it. There was also uh, the challenge to the changes, the judicially imposed changes to voting in Pennsylvania yeah. before the 2020 cycle. And you, you guys have both made the point over the last few years that this sort of um, sprawling conservative majority on the court is something of a mirage, that there are actually blocks within that that are meaningful. And what you've seen in all of these cases is three justices having a um, the most deferential position towards the state legislatures, which are Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. And I wonder to what degree that colors how you think this will actually play out before the court. I think it's going to be a fractionated decision without a clear majority. I, I don't... I'm not happy about it, but, you know, you're asking me to predict, not to defend. I don't, I don't see any justice wanting to be in the position in that six justices, right? Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh. I don't think any of them ever want to be on the left of Chief Justice Roberts. <laughs> so if Roberts votes to say, right, as consistent with his Arizona dissent that state legislature means state legislature. Yeah. I expect all the other five will line up behind him. Got it. I'm not sure. Oh, we take questions. Yeah, do we have questions from the audience? Sir. Uh, it's my understanding that in the state of Texas and maybe some other states, they allow entrance into certain universities based on the rank of given high schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thought behind that is that because we do still have de facto, or as our new justice would say, de jure segregation <laughs> in America, that you get a diverse um, student body by taking the top 7% of every high school. Aside from the policy considerations of that, what do you think of the constitutionality of uh, taking this kind of approach? I, I mean, the Constitution doesn't prohibit using geography or socioeconomic status or even randomized lottery. I actually, I heard, uh, I think a Harvard Law professor is actually proposing if uh, the court decides the way many people think it will in the Harvard case that we should just have random admissions because that'll be better than yeah. merit, right? Because that'll be closer to some kind of racial diversity than merit would. But it seems to me none of the... The problem is that the, for our, you know our administrators is that the Constitution addresses the use of race, and that's unconstitutional. But doesn't make unconstitutional any of these other factors, unless the right, big you, unless yeah, there, John. Yeah. <laughs> unless unless you know this is a pretext for unless. racial diversity, and you can you know assemble evidence that this is what's really going I mean, on, which is difficult to do. But I mean, there's no evidence to the contrary. 
Nobody would have ever thought of this thing before you struck the basic system down. Everybody who's in favor of it says that we do these particular schools. That mean weak schools with a heavy percentage of black students get a higher enrollment. Uh, what we're doing is we're using a subterfuge. So think of this, for example, in connection with voting. And what we want to do is we say, well, you know, there's nobody who says it's illegal under the Constitution to prohibit somebody from voting on the basis of who their parents are. So we'll have a grandfather clause one kind or another, which is perfectly racially neutral. It just turns out that if you go back before 1865, we knew how its effect going to be. So I think it's all unconstitutional and therefore will be upheld as constitutional. Why is that? Because these guys, they're willing to do a fight, but they're not willing to fight to the point where it's going to be total death. I mean, one of the things you have to understand, whatever happens with respect to Dobbs, you fix that by a piece of legislation. We hereby make Roe v. Wade the law of our state. And you worry about a few conflicts of interest. Every major, every minor institution in the United States has race so embedded in its admissions policies that every one of these places is going to have to re-engineer that program from the ground up if this thing goes. And none of them have the slightest idea of what they want to do. It is also the case, just to be perfectly brutal about it, whatever John thinks, we actually disagree about this. I have a much more unprincipled position about affirmative action uh, dealing with did government. You, say un you said unprincipled. Yes, I, I just want to get it on the record. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I, and thoroughly defensible, but you know that's, that's the, the way the world works. But if they're going to go in this particular way, the thing to understand is you're going to be doing this where whatever the popular sentiment is, which is, I think, by and large, much more suspicious of this than university, you're going to be dealing with a situation in which 80 to 90 percent of every university faculty in the country is in favor of some kind of affirmative action program. Uh, you're going to have huge degrees of difficulty and dislocations. And so, I mean, if they decide to affirm the current situation, uh, the argument is they don't know how the transition is going to work. One of the things they could do is to try to soften the rule, but that doesn't seem in the cards, given the way they think and the way John thinks. The other thing is to give you another year or two with respect to transition. And what's going to happen is you'll get a constitutional amendment, which will authorize affirmative action. All right, next question. Yep. Uh, wanted to ask uh, what you think about the line drawing issue when it comes to race, uh, what the court will do with, with regards to the line drawing issue when it comes to race. Um, I served as a research assistant on David Bernstein's book, Classified. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the, uh, the, the summer of 2020, when all of us were locked in our homes, I was locked in my apartment reading old notice and comment letters from the early 2000s. You, you sound that, like a young Richard Epstein. <laughs> it was certainly not for pleasure um, uh, that uh, David had asked me to look at uh, drug companies that uh, in the early 2000s that were being asked to basically fit the testing that they were being asked to, uh, to perform under certain racial categories. And the drug companies w would submit to this um, uh, you know, notice and comment period, they'd say, are you asking us to perform with scientific precision studies based on political categories of race? They'd, they wanted no part of it, and yet they still had to proceed. So my question is, to what extent is the court going to either bless or just call into question the entire um, validity of, of our you know, racial categories, but then also the subcategories within each racial category, which makes um, the endeavor uh, just e even more of a Gordian knot? Look, I, I spoke to David today, because I actually wrote a review of his book, uh, 
in the Claremont Review, and I said, look, I have a simple question for you. You point out all the things that you don't like, uh, but on the other hand, you're not prepared to ignore it, so you put it in one set of bad categories to replace another set of bad categories. Why did you do that? To which the answer sort of more or less came back. My publisher told me I have to have a solution. I can't just state a problem. Uh, but in fact, if you look at what's going on in those cases, there are some things you could do, but the problem's insuitable. So the case he starts with is there's somebody comes from some remote what's some remote Asian cousin, utterly impoverished, right? And they're put into the category of Asian. So even though they've come up from poverty, have all the advanced degrees, uh, they are basically swamped in a majority category because of the people from India, China, and all the other places who are advanced. He said, this is terrible. It turns out you then finish the book and say, well, what do we do next? And we don't know. I mean, I'm quite serious when I say that the major problem you're going to see with the affirmative action thing is the transition uh, to a system they think to be appropriate. Uh, we've already seen the, the dodge that's used. It's been accepted. But I could assure you, uh, after we go through this decision, it's going to be attacked again and maybe rejected. So we have to live with a huge amount of political uncertainty at a time, and I'm not so sure we really need it. I'm a bit of a constitutional coward, as well as being unprincipled. You're afraid of the Constitution? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, afraid of, I, I'm always afraid of losing cases. But in this issue, I'm afraid of winning them. Wow. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what's going to look at the, the end <laughs> two years from now on this stuff. And I'm just not at all happy. I have a different view, by the way, on the substance. I've said a long time ago, I do not think that the colorblind principle applies to the distribution of positive benefits. Uh, that public institutions should take their cue from private institutions. So I think there is a little legal room. None of that justifies the kind of crazy behavior that's going on today. So I have this terrible position of thinking that a little is okay and too much is bad. This is a really powerful position. So I, so I mean, and let me now tell you what I think the bottom line is. And this is an American tragedy, by the way. Um, it's either you do too much of this stuff today or you do too little of this stuff. It turns out it's extremely difficult, given our effort to decide this is a national problem rather than a localized problem in many different Hayekian ways. It turns out you can't find a way to get into the middle. And when you have a political debate, is it too much worse than too little? Uh, if you could find me a principled answer to that question, uh, please take my place on the show. <laughs> do, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. We... Uh, I, this is another quote by Chief Justice Roberts in a case, I think it's called Perry versus Van Orden, where he said, um, you know, how sordid is this business of separating us by race? And that is a great example is once you start to say we are allowed to use race in the distribution of benefits in mm -hmm. right, Oh, well, sorry. Me, uh, wait, well, I'm not. Wait, stop taking my mints. No, no here I, you go. I, I, I <laughs> need it. No, no, but yeah. is that once you go down that road, you have to make these classification judgments of the good races and the disfavored races. And I think the Constitution, the principle, is a good one because it stops us from ever going down that road. The Fourteenth Amendment, the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments are after a period of our history where our government did do exactly that. 
And the court's recent, recent decisions essentially say, we don't care how benign your purpose is. When you start using race, you start making judgments like that will be bad for society. So I, I actually want to ask you this. You, you are willing to use race, and it sounded like in a small, moderate way, but why are you using it to use race? Oh, is, it because, wait, 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 is it because you actually think it will produce some social good, or do you think it's just, so, it's just too politically untenable to be against racial diversity? I will answer this question as best I could. I want you to know I find all my answers unsatisfactory, but I will... <laughs> Uh, but well, on I, that, we finally agree. No, no, no. Uh, but uh, the same thing with John. I mean, the first thing you start doing is he uses the word sorted. And you could find 80% of the Americans who say what is morally necessary is what the Chief Justice calls sorted. And it turns out that the real vice is, in fact, that we have a man who is utterly blind to the injustices of the past. And what's truly sorted, the word is cheap. Um, is the willingness to use a colorblind situation when some rectification is needed. So I, I don't think he could win on that. Uh, what happens is, as I've said in many occasions, and I mean it quite seriously, is the only affirmative action programs I'm in favor of are those that I run. <laughs> no, no, I, don't, I don't believe the classical institute at NYU no, uses affirmative action. Well, uh, we act, Tell me it's not true. No, Tell we do me not use not. it. And what turns out, we don't have to use it. Because we're, we're the kind of thing that we're doing, uh, what we do is we have the following proposition, is that if you want to have excellence, you have to have diversity in picking your people. And if you have diversity, you'll end up with mediocrity. So we don't do that. But look, there's so many people, and what I said was the Hayekian solution, going to some state university, some private university, some religious university, some this, some that, they all have different needs and local knowledge matters. And what this does is it forces either one Procrustean bet on you or another. Because one of the things that's going to happen is if we start using these funny formulas, they won't work for certain kinds of colleges. They will work for other kinds of colleges. So I want decentralization. The position that I took or take, and I've done it for over 20 years, has been taken by no person, living or dead, <laughs> over that period of time on this particular issue. And so you look at the debate, and it's crying out for some way to decentralize the problem, and you can't find anything about this. There is no reason whatsoever that they have a policy that applies to every institution by constitutional fiat in either direction or by statute. And most of you know I'm in favor of repealing all the anti-discrimination acts unless they're designed to counteract monopoly power, a limited class. And never have I felt more comfortable in that position than watching the other craziness that starts to go on by people who think they can improve on Mother Nature, i.e., on competitive markets. So, I mean, I regard this as a tragedy in the coming. I don't see any happy outcome. And when you listen and look at the particular articles, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know which death spiral we're on as a nation, but I think we're on one. We are at the very end of our allotted time. So you gentlemen... Oh, what a happy way to end. Yeah. <laughs> you gentlemen behind the microphone, you sweet, naive gentlemen who thought you could outlast Richard Epstein's ability to talk. <laughs> I'm sure the professors will be happy to answer your questions afterwards. For the rest of you, thank you very much for coming. We appreciate you being here. This 
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. I, mean, I, I just watched my crazy animal. Not the mic. Not the mic. Havana, Gila, Havana. <laughs>